You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast, Episode 3, for October 21st, 2007. Metamore City, a podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorecity.com. Hello, ladies and gents, and welcome to Episode 3 of the Metamore City Podcast. I am your host, Chris Lester, and it is my continued pleasure to bring you these stories of a world where magic and technology intertwine. In this week's episode, I have two shorter stories for you. The first story, House Call, is a character-driven vignette starring Detective Catherine Catane and her elven partner, David Silverleaf. The second story is called The Sentinel, and it introduces a new viewpoint character named Janus Starson. Janus is the local field commander for the Lothanasi Order, a sort of global police force for the supernatural. As you'll soon see, it's a thankless job. Alright, that's enough chit-chat out of me for now. I'll be back with a little more banter after the stories. So grab your reagents and polish your holy symbol. It's time to hit the street. House Call by Chris Lester September 23rd, 1999 Christos Reckoning Evening Kate pulled her swoop into the dimly lit garage, parked in a narrow space in the corner, and took the stairs up to David's flat. After fumbling in her pocket for a moment while trying to juggle her armful of shopping bags, she managed to pull out the key her partner had given her and slip it into the lock. The door creaked loudly as she pushed it open. "'It's me, David,' she announced, stepping into the living-slash-dining room that also served as the small apartment's entry hall. The place looked much as it always did. Books and magazines in neat stacks on virtually every available horizontal surface. Small throw pillows and blankets sitting here and there on the old and well-worn furniture. A couple of rented vid discs sitting on top of the TV. A sketch pad and pencil on one of the coffee tables. Kate set down the groceries on the couch and picked up the pad, smiling slightly. David's latest work was a series of sketches of Tana Hin Corden, the star of Rhapsody. Taking the pad with her, she retrieved the bags and carried them past the kitchen into the bedroom. David was sitting propped up in his bed amidst a sea of pillows, thick blankets piled on top of him. A book sat beside him on the bed, but at the moment his eyes were closed. His long, dark hair hung around his face in tangled, matted locks, and his normally olive-hued skin looked paler than usual. He looked up at her as she entered, and his usually striking violet eyes looked dulled and tired. "'How you feelin', bud?' Kate asked, leaning back against the doorframe. David's lip twisted ironically as he let out a quiet snort. "'Not quite like death warmed over, but close enough,' he said. "'It's a lot of things, actually. It would probably be quicker to tell you what isn't aching or otherwise malfunctioning.' "'Poor baby,' Kate said sympathetically. 
I'll bet it's the flu. Can elves get the flu? We can, but I don't think our versions are usually this bad. I think one of the local human strains must have met up with the remnants of some past elf flu in my system, decided they could make beautiful music together. Ah, virus love. Feel the romance. Oh, I'm feeling it all right. A glorious five-act melodrama with a full orchestra seated behind my temples and a major interpretive dance segment in my upper respiratory system. They're bringing the house down in there. Kate smiled and held up the bags. Well, let's see if we can close the curtains on that show for a while. Artax assures me that this is everything we need. Just the right mix of alchemy and home cooking. Just make sure you read the directions. Kate grinned at that. Artax, the proprietor of the local magic shop, was infamous for the whimsical and chaotic effects that his merchandise produced when the user failed to follow the directions. She found it hard to blame him for that. Any sort of truly powerful magic carried the danger of side effects if it was misused, and at least he didn't sell anything that could get the customer killed. Not to novices and amateurs, anyway. Fortunately, his directions were generally straightforward and easy to follow. Don't worry, I'll double-check every step, she assured David, setting the bags down. She held up the sketch pad, which she'd had tucked under her arm. Nice work, by the way. What did you think of the movie? David's face brightened a little at the sight of his sketch pad, and he gave her a small smile. Very impressive. Surprisingly deep and subtle for human film. Well, human audiences won't sit in the theater for twelve hours, Kate pointed out. Kinda limits your options. True, but they did very well with the time they had, David said. His eyes were becoming more animated now. He lifted his arms from beneath the covers and began making small gestures with his hands as he spoke. And Miss Hincorden was remarkable. The expressiveness in her eyes, her body, her voice. She captured both Lillian's vulnerability and her tenacity equally well. I think she must identify a great deal with the character. She seems to be working out her own emotions as she plays Lillian, using the character's experiences as a sort of catharsis to free her from the ghosts of her own past. Kate smiled and nodded. In truth, Tana Hidden Corden had said something along those lines in an interview a few months back, but Kate knew David wouldn't have seen it. He didn't want anyone else to tell him what he should think about books, movies, or any other sort of entertainment until he'd had a chance to see it for himself. "'Insightful as always, Mr. Silverleaf,' she said. "'So, does that bring you any closer to unlocking the divine nature?' David shrugged. "'I'd like to think so, at least a little. "'But the epiphany isn't really something you can see coming. "'They say that you can just be going about your business, doing whatever you're doing, "'smelling a flower, stroking a pet's fur, watching people at a restaurant, "'making love to your wife, and all of a sudden it just hits you.' and it's like you're looking into the face of God. But it's different for every elf. Kate nodded. David had explained the idea of the epiphany to her a few years ago, shortly after coming to Metamore City. It had taken a while for her to get used to the fact that he referred to the Creator simply as God, as if there were only one of them that was worthy of the title. Apparently the elves had names for the Creator, but they were considered too holy to use in casual conversation. In the time she'd known David, his spiritual quest had taken many forms. 
examining the actors in popular movies was one of his more recent experiments. Still think your moment's going to come by studying humanity? she asked. Could be. The elf smiled. Even if it doesn't, I'm enjoying the journey, and that's the most important thing. <coughs> His voice caught on the last word, and he coughed suddenly and violently, wincing as he did so. So, we're back to <coughs> hacking again, he said sourly, swallowing once with visible discomfort. I thought we'd finished that particular number. Give me a few minutes to cook up this brew, and we'll see if we can convince that virus to call it a night. Kate said, picking up the bags and heading back to the kitchen. Sit tight. I'm not sure I could move if I wanted to, David said. In the kitchen, Kate filled the kettle and put it on the stove, then pulled out the ingredients and a mixing bowl and began preparing the potion according to the directions Artax had given her. It was a classic sort of hedge wizard's remedy, taking a basic herbal tea and combining it with healing powders and other alchemical reagents. Enchantment spells weren't Kate's strongest suit as a wizard, but the instructions were clear and the incantation was spelled out phonetically in a large, clear font. Ten minutes and one ritual chant later, Kate brought a steaming mug of the potion back to David, along with a mug of plain chamomile tea for herself. "'Careful, that was boiling just a minute ago,' Kate said, handing him the mug. "'Caution noted.' David took an experimental sip winced, and lowered the mug to his lap. So, what happened down at the station today? Anything new and exciting? Nothing much for us, Kate said, taking a seat in the bedroom's only chair. I made some progress on a report for the Tillman case, but nothing new on the desk today. Homicide was jumping, though. Whole section was off investigating one thing or another. That's never good. Somebody start another turf war? Maybe. Looks like one of the local gangs got their hands on some full-auto weapons. Maybe they decided to make a play. I didn't get a chance to talk to anybody in H-section, though, so it may just be one of those weeks. Anyway, the new kid showed up today, so the captain had me show him around. David nodded. I was wondering if he'd turn up today. Tell me about him. Kate shrugged. He's a good kid. Name of Michael Pirelli. Comes from some hick town in the Flatlands, so naturally the city's got him more than a little freaked. I think that happens to everyone when they first come here, David said wryly. True enough. He seems to have his head screwed on straight, though. Helped me stop at 245 while I was showing him around the street. The elf raised his eyebrows. Any trouble? Kate grimaced. Let's just say that's when we found out about the full autos. David winced. Not fun. Not at all. Fortunately, they weren't too sharp. I cast a few figments, and they dropped their guns and took off. Lucky. Damn lucky, Kate agreed soberly. We'd be in deep trouble if anyone ever started teaching the swoopies how to see through illusions. The rogue mages are trouble enough as it is. David took another sip at his mug. This time he seemed satisfied with the temperature and took a longer drink. Anything else interesting? Not too. Morgan tried to eat Michael, though, so I had to explain things to him to make sure it doesn't happen again. David chuckled and shook his head. <laughs> we really have to make sure she stops coming to work on an empty stomach. Are you still letting her play matchmaker for you? Kate rolled her eyes. Against my better judgment, yes. 
We have another double date this Friday. Didn't your last date turn out to be an incubus or something? No, that's Damien, the groundskeeper at my apartment. The last date was a kleptonite Daedra who liked making jokes about his horns, not to mention growing them on other people. Ah, yes, I remember that guy now. Didn't he make you... Yes, he did. And Morgan took a picture, didn't she? She did. David leaned back and took a long, thoughtful sip of the healing potion. You know, I'm surprised we never made any reprints of that. You want me to screw up that potion next time? Because I'm pretty sure that would make for a funny picture. The elf held up his hand, palm outward, in an expression of truce. Point taken. Love life a sore point. I shall say no more. Kate sighed and slumped a bit further into her chair. I'm sorry, David. I don't mean to bitch. I just... She paused, fidgeting with the cup in her hands while she tried to put it into words. I'm not getting any younger, you know? My mom was married for seven years and had a three-year-old daughter by the time she was my age. And I love her for trying, but Morgan doesn't really get the whole nice, normal guy thing. She's gonna live forever, and she can never have kids anyway. She's looking for a fling, not a prospective husband. Morgan was into wild men even before she was turned, as I recall. I know. Even more reason why she can't really understand what I'm looking for. Braddock vamped her before she'd even had a chance to think about these things. And now they'll never matter to her. Kate lowered her head and took another sip of her tea. It's odd, David said after a moment's silence. I've never known anyone who lives life as enthusiastically as you do. He smiled. Every morning when you come into the office, you seem to hit the ground running, taking advantage of every moment. The way you talk, the way you laugh, the jokes you play on the other guys in the force, the way you handle the jokes they play back, the way you handle things on the street. You don't do anything by halves. His smile turned sad and sympathetic, and he shook his head slightly. But then we have moments like this, and you show me the things you live with, the things you hide from everyone else. He paused, wiping a tear from his eye, and looked up at her, his violet eyes now deeply sincere. I'm honored that you trust me enough to show me, he said, and I want you to know that I'll always be here for you. If there's anything I can ever do to help, if you want me to carry your needs before God, or if you just need me to be there with you, I'll be here. Kate smiled. Thank you, David, she said, deeply touched. I know you will. After a long moment, she broke eye contact and took another drink. It's not like it's something that bothers me all the time, you know. For the most part, I've got it good, and I know it. The happy me isn't all an act. It's just sometimes this being alone thing gets to me. And then it hurts, and I wonder why I can't find a nice guy to spend the rest of my life with. She shrugged. And it's not like I don't trust Eli's timing. I do. I just wish he'd hurry it up, you know? David smiled knowingly. I understand. You might do well to spend a few years in Quinardia, though. My people know a few things about letting God work at his own pace. Kate snorted. <laughs> Easy for you to say, immortal boy. We humans are on just a bit tighter schedule than you. 
And you don't think God knows that? David asked, gently. Kate looked at him for a moment, then smirked. Point. Then she crossed her arms and added with a mock pout, That doesn't mean I have to like it, though. True, David conceded. Seriously, though, Kate, I wouldn't worry about it. You're a remarkable woman, and I have faith you'll find a suitably remarkable gentleman soon enough. Like attracts like, after all. Kate frowned. I thought opposites attract. That's electromagnetism. This is chemistry, which I think is the superior metaphor, wouldn't you agree? I guess. She grinned. I'd like to think there will be some sparks, though. In this town, you may want to be careful what you wish for, David said, winking. There are some people for whom that could be taken literally. Good point, Kate said, chuckling as she rose to her feet. Well, I'm starving, so unless you want me to raid your fridge, I guess I'd better get home. Thanks for the talk, though. It helped a lot. You know, just knowing you're here for me. Any time, David said. And thank you for the tea. I'm feeling a good deal better already. Glad to hear it. Rest up and get well, okay? Things may have been slow for us today, but I don't think our luck is going to hold for long. In this business, certainly not, David agreed. Good night, Kate. Good night, David. As she rode home that night, Kate reflected on what David had said, about her, about himself, and about life in general. He was right, and she knew it. Life would happen as it happened, and it was better to enjoy the ride than to worry about how long it would take to get to the next stop. For here and now, she had responsibilities to concern herself with, bad guys to fight, innocence to protect, friends to love and cherish. Mr. Wright would come around in time. Eli would see to that. Smiling, she took the off-ramp that led down to the street. Her appetite could wait. There was a good swoop course not far from here where she could open up the throttle and get in a few quick laps at 240 kph or so before heading home. The adrenaline rush would do her good after the long day at work. Take advantage of every moment, she murmured. Sometimes, enjoying the journey was enough. listen to this podcast. Yeah, I gotta talk to you for a second. I got this friend here. He's doing this podcast. This is a book, a, a podcast novel. And he's asking me, how do you think I can get the people to listen to this podcast? And I understand his problem. I mean, there are so many podcasts out there. It's tough to choose, huh? But you know what I told him? Respect. Respect is the best way to get people to listen. When the people respect you the way I do, it reflects on you and your family. So if the people respect you, then they will listen. That's what I told them. Now, this podcast is Bill Bob Battings in the Case of the Singing Sword, done by a friend of mine named T. Morris, and I respect him. I respect him like family. So I think the best thing for you to do is listen. Because if you don't listen, then, you know, you're being disrespectful. And if you're being disrespectful to his family, you're being disrespectful to my family. We understand each other?
All right, that's good. Now, here's a pretty lady to give you all the details. Billabub Battings in the case of the singing sword. Find out more by clicking on the Billabub Battings podcast banner at www.tmorris.com. Okay, you got all that? Capiche? That's good. Very good. So why are you still here? I mean, what are you doing? Shouldn't you be subscribing now? Hey, this is Leanne Mabry from Tagging the Seam, and you're listening to the Metamorph City Podcast. The Sentinel by Chris Lester Desperate, panicked footsteps broke the silence of the street. A hunched and withered figure raced on all fours through the alleys and access tunnels. Its clawed hands and feet scrabbled for traction as it sprinted across the pools of light made by the street lamps overhead, seeking refuge in the darkness between them. Its body seemed to be made of smoke and shadows as well as flesh, and it blended easily into the gloom, but the creature appeared to take no solace in this. It could hear the footsteps of its pursuers behind it. It didn't dare slow down. The creature passed into a long tunnel, one that led it deep into the heart of a massive skyscraper. Cross corridors intersected the tunnel at regular intervals, creating a labyrinth that it hoped would confuse its pursuers. The creature darted right at the first intersection, then left, then right again. It paused in a pool of shadow and listened, trying not to pant so that its bat-like ears could more easily hear the sounds of its enemies. At last it let out a deep sigh. The footsteps seemed to have faded. It was safe. The creature continued down the tunnel, emerging from the building into a narrow alleyway. A blast of wind came from nowhere and slammed it up against the wall of the building. The creature writhed and shrieked in terror. It turned its huge black eyes toward the mouth of the alley, where a tall man dressed in white was approaching with a naked sword in his hand. His hard, chiseled face was set in a cold expression, and his eyes glowed blue-white like two points of flame. The sword in his hand was a meter long and curved back and forth along its length like a serpent's tail. The elven sigils on the blade glowed an angry red, and the silvery-white metal hummed softly as the man pointed the blade at the creature's chest. No, please, the creature whined, shielding its eyes from the terrible weapon. Leave us alone. We didn't do anything wrong. Willem and Marion Fowler would disagree with that statement, the man said coldly. Where is the child? We doesn't know. We didn't take it. The man pressed the tip of his sword against the creature's throat. Lying to me is a bad way to start this, Daedra. You are the one they call Skerig, are you not? The Daedra nodded weakly. Yes, we caught Skerig, but we didn't hurt the human child. Starson must believe us. The man called Starson narrowed his eyes. You're a born con artist, Skerig. 
We have 16 accounts of you selling glamoured garbage to pawn shops under the pretense of being antiques. I don't see why I should be compelled to believe anything you say. Skerrick peeked up from behind its hands. Then why does Starson wish to ask us? The man lowered his sword a few centimeters and let out an exasperated sigh. (sighs) Because we need to get the girl back, and you're the only one who knows what happened to her. He paused, and the light in his eyes dimmed until they resembled an ordinary human's. Tell me what you saw. Skerig sat up and tucked its scaly legs close to its chest. Girl was playing with ball. She chased it into our alley. We likes the girl. She has pretty black hair and soft brown skin. Not ugly like us. But she is kind to us. Skerig grinned, showing a nightmare collection of shark-like teeth. We plays with her. Shows her secret places. Special places. Starson glared at the Daedra. What kinds of special places? The Daedra gestured nervously. Special places. Little holes for hiding things. A quiet place where cat has her kittens. Places to go and see people in their houses and not be seen. If this girl was such a good friend to you, why isn't she still with you? Skerig looked down at the ground. Men show up, it said. Bad men. Big, scary men in big, nasty swoops. We get scared and run away, but girl does not run fast. She goes in building to hide while we runs away. The man looked closely at Skerig a moment longer. Then he put the sword away, sliding it into a scabbard over his shoulder. Show me where she went, he said. Janus Starson followed Skerig down the street, keeping a spell close at his fingertips in case the Daedra decided to run for it. In truth, he was somewhat relieved after hearing Skerig's side of the story. The little wretch was mischievous and cunning, but their file on him didn't suggest the sort of creature that would resort to kidnapping and murder. Leading a child off to be a playmate and then abandoning her in a moment of danger was much more in keeping with what they knew of Skerig's personality. Even so... If they couldn't recover the child, he would take pleasure in banishing Skerig to the dreamlands personally. His communicator chirped in his ear, and he tapped it with a finger. This is Starson. Go. Hey boss, where are you? We lost track of Skerig under Halvard Tower. I have him, Janus said. I'm checking out his story right now. Contact the MCPD and ask them to pull up any reports on gang-related violence in Precinct 13 within the last 12 hours. Got it. You need any backup? Negative. Not at the moment. I'll call if I need anything. Copy that. Good luck, boss. The building to which Skerig led him was an apartment complex built on the eastern face of Hughes Tower, near the north end of Precinct 13. The apartments were dressed in simple brown stone, with ornamental columns flanking the doors and carved lintels above the small rectangular windows. They stretched at least thirty stories up the side of the scraper, well past the first layer of skyways overhead. The planters in front of the building housed a variety of shade-tolerant plants, all of which appeared healthy and well-tended. It was an old-fashioned building, hearkening back to designs from a hundred years ago, 
but everything seemed to be in surprisingly good repair. Skerig pointed to a set of stairs leading up to a pair of heavy wooden doors, which obviously marked the main entrance to the complex at street level. The girl goes in there to hide, he said. Did the men on swoops see where she went? We doesn't know. We was being chased. Janus nodded and tapped his communicator again. Candace, I need you to run an address for me. He read off the number above the door of the building. The Serenity Arms Apartment Complex, Candace said a minute later. The proprietress is named Isri Fallon. Janus frowned. Candace, please confirm. Did you say Isri Fallon? Yeah, why? He grimaced. We have a file on her. She's a succubus. There was a pause at the other end of the line. Shit, Candace said. Language, Candace. Sorry, boss. Do you want that backup now? Get them ready, but don't send them in. Wait for my signal. He smiled grimly and adjusted the collar of his uniform. There's no reason we can't be civil about this. The door was locked and warded for the night, so Janus pushed the intercom button for the front desk. Serenity Arms, who is it? This is Agent Janus Starson of the Lothanasi Order. May I come in? Janus thought he heard the woman mutter a curse under her breath. What do you want, Lightbringer? The voice asked. I need to speak with Ms. Isri Fallon, Janus said. I'm investigating a missing persons case, and I believe she may have information that could help us. May I please come in? There was a long pause. Finally, the buzzer sounded and the door bolt disengaged. Janus motioned for Skerig to remain outside, then opened the door and entered. The lobby and lounge areas maintained the retro feel of the building. Cherry wood wainscoting and rich red and gold wallpaper complemented the wooden floors and imitation Kelleware rugs. Large fans hung from the coffered ceilings, with lights suspended beneath them and the furniture was upholstered in deep red fabric of obvious quality. Mirrors, paintings, and old photographs hung on the walls in elaborate frames with gold inlay. Bookshelves in the lounge stretched from floor to ceiling, all of them filled with titles that must have spanned at least 200 years of history. Beyond the lobby, a broad staircase of polished wood swept up to the second level, the steps covered in red carpet. A large L-shaped counter served as the front desk, and it wasn't even shielded with bulletproof glass. Janus didn't know what to think. He couldn't believe that a place like this had survived for this long at street level without falling into disrepair or being destroyed in a bout of gang violence. Yet his sight told him that this was not a glamour. Everything here was just what it appeared to be. This, combined with the knowledge that the owner was a succubus, made him instantly suspicious. A young woman stood behind the front desk, watching him with an expression of open hostility. Her honey-blonde hair, pale skin, and blue eyes made a marked contrast to her body-hugging red and gold gown, which was obviously Hanese in origin. She had pulled her hair back into a bun that was held in place by a pair of long needles, which added even further to the eastern look. The gown was modest enough, but it had a long slit up one side that exposed a long, shapely leg. Right now, she had that leg cocked out to the side, and her hands on her waist in a confrontational posture. 
She looked human enough to mortalize, but the soft humming of his sword in its scabbard told Janus a different story. He bowed to her in greeting. Miss Fallon? She'll be down in a minute, the girl said, still glaring at him. I'd tell you to make yourself comfortable, but then I'd have to clean the furniture after you leave. Janus just gave her a faint smile. That's quite all right, Miss Sylvia, he said, glancing down at her name tag. I'm happy to stand. Sylvia crossed her arms and ran her eyes up and down the length of his body, taking in the spellcrafted white fabric of his combat fatigues. The uniform was designed to repel any stain or blemish, as well as a good number of more dangerous things. The twin cross of the Lothanasi was embroidered in gold on the front pocket and on the sides of the sleeves. This was the only obvious mark of Janus's authority, but it was enough. "'You've got a lot of nerve coming in here in full battle gear,' she said. "'You think you can just barge in and show that sword around whenever you feel like it? We're law-abiding citizens. We have rights.' Janus drifted over to one of the bookshelves and scanned the titles in mild interest. "'Some of your tenants might well be citizens,' he said. "'And as such, they certainly would have rights. But even if that were true, it remains that you, Miss Sylvia, are a succubus. You are a resident, not a citizen. And you have privileges, not rights. And the difference between rights and privileges is that privileges can be revoked.' We haven't done anything wrong, Sylvia said fiercely. Janus smiled. Eh, you'd be amazed at how often I hear that. It always amuses me to hear a Daedra's definitions of the ideas of right and wrong. I once met a wraith who believed that it was right for him to kill the homeless when they became sick. He told me that he was just relieving them from their suffering. He turned around and looked at her. So naturally I returned the favor by relieving him from his... Sylvia's eyes burned orange-red, like two hot embers. In the space of a breath, the shadows in the room seemed to gather themselves around her. A scent like incense and wood smoke filled the air as the succubus summoned up her aura. Janus stayed where he was, but he shifted his footing to a more combat-ready posture. Wraiths are scum, Sylvia hissed. They kill people for pleasure. Whereas you kill people with pleasure, Janus said. We don't kill anyone here, you self-righteous bastard. We feed, yes, but not without consent. And we damned well don't hurt anybody. How dare you compare us to those... those murderers? She stepped forward and thrust out her chest at him. If you ask me, I think you're just jealous because there isn't a sucky in town who would deign to sleep with you. Sylvia? A woman's voice came from the top of the stairs. She sounded calm and composed, but her voice also commanded instant attention. That will be enough. Sylvia lowered her head and let the power drain out of her aura. The fire died down behind her eyes, and the lighting returned to normal. Yes, Miss Fallon, she said quietly. Janus returned to the lobby and looked up at Isri Fallon as she descended the staircase. She was darker in complexion than Sylvia, with glossy black hair, bronze skin, and almond-shaped eyes of a rich reddish-brown. She looked like she might have a mix of Hanis and Songafilder ancestry, though of course that was all completely arbitrary. As a succubus, she could look like whatever she wished. 
Unlike most succubi, though, Ms. Fallon did not present an image of wanton sexuality. She appeared to be in her late forties. While she was beautiful, it was a mature beauty, with a sense of grace and elegance that most younger women lacked. Her gown was similar to Sylvia's, though without the daring slash up the side. It clung to the curves of her body, which was neither fat nor skinny, but it exposed very little of her skin below the neck. She was barefoot, and Janus estimated that she was nearly twenty centimeters shorter than he, but she did not seem intimidated in the slightest as she came down to face him. She bowed to him in greeting. Agent Stassen of the Lothanasi, she said gravely. I welcome you as a guest within my home. Janus returned the bow. Miss Fallon, he said, I thank you for your hospitality, and I give my word that I shall comport myself as a guest. Miss Fallon smiled at him. You see, Sylvia, Agent Starson can be courteous when courtesy is shown to him. Sylvia did not raise her eyes. As you say, mistress. The older woman's eyes shifted back to Janus. Agent Starson, it is clear that you have come to us on a matter of great urgency. Perhaps you would care to join me in my drawing room so we might discuss it. Janus nodded once. Certainly. Lead the way, Miss Fallon. The drawing room was on the 21st floor of the apartment complex, which was also the floor that had access to the first skyway. Miss Fallon had decorated it along much the same lines as the lounge downstairs, with hundreds of books and design cues from the late 19th century. In this inner sanctum, though, the succubus had allowed a little of her sexual nature to express itself. Tasteful nudes from a dozen cultures took the place of the portraits and still life paintings that Janus had seen downstairs. Soft, thick rugs covered the floors, and the overstuffed couches looked comfortable and inviting. The scent of jasmine hung faintly in the air.
Please have a seat, she said as they entered. Would you like tea, Agent Starson? Janus hesitated. If the missing girl wasn't here, every moment he delayed would reduce the likelihood of finding her. On the other hand, if Skerig's information was correct, he couldn't afford to antagonize Isri Fallon by spurning her hospitality. She might be the only one who could tell him what had happened. I'd be delighted, thank you, he said at last, taking a seat on the couch. It was as soft and comfortable as it looked. Miss Fallon had either been expecting guests or had already been entertaining them earlier in the evening, because she had an insulated pot of tea already waiting. She brought the tea service on a silver platter and set it down on the low coffee table in front of him, then poured two small cups for Janus and herself. It was oolong tea, delicate and fragrant. Janus bypassed the milk and sugar and drank it straight. He wasn't worried about poison or enchantments. Ms. Fallon had given him her offer of hospitality, and that still counted for a great deal among creatures as old as she. "'How do you like it?' Ms. Fallon asked, sitting down next to him. "'Excellent,' Janus said truthfully. "'I'm glad to hear it.' She took a sip of her own, then set it down and clasped her hands in front of her. "'Now then, how can I assist the Lightbringers, Agent Starson?' Janus took another drink before replying. Earlier this evening, a child was reported missing. Seven-year-old Ashley Fowler. He pulled a picture out of his front pocket and showed it to her. She's a street-level resident of Precinct 14. We tracked her to a Tokagi Daedra named Skerig, who claims that he was playing with her, until a swoop gang showed up and chased him off. He says that he last saw the child entering your building. Ah, Miss Fallon said. She raised her eyebrows. I was not aware that the Lothanasi involved themselves in retrieving lost children. I would have thought that that would be a matter for local law enforcement. Normally, yes, Janus agreed. But with the evidence showing a dangerous involvement, it was decided that this fell within our jurisdiction. I see. Miss Fallon rose from her seat and walked over to the opposite side of the room. She picked up a book that had been sitting on an end table and cradled it in her hands as she leaned back against the bookshelf. "'By whom?' she asked. "'I'm sorry?' "'By whom was it decided that this matter fell within your jurisdiction? You must admit the ties to otherworldly activity are rather tenuous. A Tokagi is hardly a likely candidate for a murder suspect.' So who made the decision that this was beyond the capabilities of the mortal police? Janus frowned. If the local field commander believes that there's credible evidence of preternatural involvement, he can declare operational authority over the case immediately. It is subject to review by the board of directors, of course, but in an emergency the field commander's judgment is enough. By which you mean your judgment is enough, Miss Fallon said pointedly. You received word of the case, possibly heard eyewitnesses report seeing a demon in the area, and then took over the investigation, because, after all, how can a missing child be anything but an emergency? She raised an eyebrow at him. Is anything that I have just said inaccurate, Agent Starson? Janus looked at her for a long moment. If I may, Miss Fallon, I am not certain I understand the point of contention. Are you saying that you believe that a mortal child in danger is not an emergency? 
Miss Fallon snorted and shook her head. Of course not. I'm afraid you are missing the point. She opened the book to a marked passage and began to read. Be wary of those who seek power, for power, once given, can rarely be taken back. The natural tendency of power is to accumulate, to gather itself in one pair of hands, and those who seek power are nearly always the least qualified to wield it responsibly. And most dangerous of all are those who seek power for the good of others, for by this they mean the good they would choose, and they will use their power to impose this vision on others until it suffocates them. She looked up at Janus. Sound familiar? Not especially. It should. Those words were written by Marai Hindena, the star child. She held up the book and showed it to Janus. It was a copy of the Codex of Marai. She is your ancestor. That is what the starson name implies, is it not? Janus nodded stiffly. Perhaps you should spend more time in her company, then. She set the book back on the end table and walked to the back door of the drawing room. Come here, please. Janus did so, and she opened the door to let him see inside. The room beyond was the bedroom of the master suite, with plush carpets and a large four-poster bed. Lying on the bed, curled up and fast asleep, was a little girl in a borrowed silk kimono. Miss Fallon shut the door again quietly and turned to face him, meeting his gaze steadily. She came to us cold, frightened, and filthy, she said. We've been taking care of her ever since. The poor girl doesn't know her own phone number and can't remember where she lives, so we plan to make some calls in the morning. Janus looked at her, saw the truth in her eyes, and nodded. Very well. Now that you know who she is, I'll be happy to take her back. No. He stared at her, surprised by the sudden anger in her voice. His eyes narrowed. Miss Fallon, her parents are terrified. They won't be sleeping tonight. If you don't turn her over to my custody, it could be considered grounds for a kidnapping charge. The succubus did not budge. You and your kind have taken too much authority already, Agent Stassen. You seized jurisdiction on this case on the flimsiest of pretenses. Now you expect me to reward that behavior by letting you take the credit for her safe return? No. She crossed her arms. You have far too much power and far too little accountability. If you can't even recognize the words of your great patron when they're spoken to you, then it's obvious that you've forgotten why you were given that power in the first place. I won't help you compound that error by doing anything to endear you to the people whose lives you are so eager to control. We are trying to protect people. And what safer place is there than a cage? She raised her chin and looked at him defiantly. The child will be returned to her family through the proper authorities. End of discussion. Janus felt the fire creep back into his eyes. And when do you propose to do that, Daedra? When will the family have suffered enough grief and uncertainty and terror to satisfy your need for chaos? How about now? Janus turned around to see the silhouetted figure of a woman standing in the doorway. As she stepped into the room, he took in her golden skin, auburn hair, green eyes, and athletic frame. She glared at him as she shut the door behind her. Lieutenant Katane, Janus said, frowning. You're out of your jurisdiction.
That makes two of us, Kitane said, putting her hands on her hips. But unlike you, I live here. She looked over at the succubus. Sorry to barge in, Miss Fallon, but Sylvia told me there might be trouble. Looks like she was right. I am only trying to return this child to her family, Janus insisted. Your landlady has decided to make her a pawn for some kind of political statement. No need to rehash, Janus. I've been listening for a while. Look, missing persons cases are handled by the Special Investigations Division. They're independent of the whole precinct structure. Give me the parents' contact information, and I'll make sure they're notified immediately. They can come to her, or we'll bring her to them, whatever they want. She extended a hand to him. If it's really not about who gets the credit, it shouldn't matter to you, right? He looked at her, at Miss Fallon, and at the door to the bedroom where the child slept. Finally, grudgingly, he pulled out the Fowler's contact information and handed it to Katane. Thank you. She glanced over at Miss Fallon again. Let her sleep for now, until we find out how the parents want to deal with this. Of course, Miss Fallon said, nodding. Thank you, Kate. No problem. She looked at Janus. Talk to you outside for a minute? Janus followed her. When they had shut the doors to the drawing room behind them, he said, I must admit I'm surprised, Lieutenant. I wouldn't have expected you to live in an apartment run by succubi. He smiled, coldly. But then I expect Miss Fallon might be somewhat flexible in how she collects payment. Shut the hell up, Janus. Miss Fallon has done more to clean up her corner of the street than any of your kind ever did. There's a reason those swoopies didn't follow Ashley inside here. Janus raised his eyebrows. Are you saying she commits violence against mortals as well? You're making her look better by the minute. Katane put a finger in the middle of his chest. Don't you dare! Janus smiled blandly. Relax, Lieutenant. I have no interest in Miss Fallon or any of her little coterie. I was here to do a job, nothing more. The politics of the situation don't interest me. Now that the matter is in hand, I shall be on my way. The illusionist looked into his eyes for a long moment, and he watched the anger drain out of them. At last, she turned away, shaking her head. The scary thing is you really believe that, she said. Go on, then. There are plenty of real monsters out there for you to fight. Go do the job we pay you to do. Janus gave her a curt nod and exited the building at the first skyway. Once outside, he tapped his communicator. How'd it go, boss? Candace asked. The Fowler case has been resolved, Janus said. The girl is safe and local authorities are handling retrieval. What's our status? Glad you asked. We have reports of broad-scale magical disturbances up in Soulshore. Looks like some fairies may have come through from the dreamlands and started causing trouble. Understood. Have a skimmer meet me at the first level near Hughes Tower. Copy that. We'll have it waiting for you at the corner of Trent and 87th. Janus adjusted the strap holding his scabbard and headed north toward the rendezvous point. He dismissed the incident with the succubus from his mind. So people didn't like him. So they didn't trust him. He didn't care. As long as creatures from outside were trying to prey on the people in his city, he had a job to do. 
and he'd make sure it got done, one way or another. We'll be back with more of the Metamore City podcast right after these messages. First, there was Firefly. Where the hell is my spaceship? Shoot the man, not the horse. About a year now, I ain't had nothing to fix my nethers. We're run on bottom. Big damn heroes, sir. That sounds like no, science fiction. No, that's true. Then came the signal. I'm Wes. It's not and just I'm because Serenity And we have another interview for you in this show. You're listening to News It's also a home. The Firefly Timeline. You're going to need a higher This gun. feature is all about when things happen. We want our trilogy. Now there's a whole world of new adventures. Would you fight for that right? How come no one's ever there's done it? There's plenty here that would. Probably no one's been desperate enough to Don't try. worry, this okay. guy ain't even I bet we are. Join us at the signal, because the verse just got bigger. www.serenityfirefly.com The following takes place between it was a dark and stormy night and what would happen next, only time will tell. This is Bauer. Jack, this is CTU. Where are you? We need you in the field. I can't. I am in the middle of a severe plot twist. Jack, what are you talking about? What I am talking about is my daily word count, my goals in character development, and my possibilities in getting published. Jack, your country needs you. You should be in the field. No. I should be writing, just like Mara Lafferty tells me on her podcast. She gives writing tips, personal anecdotes, and even features published authors in interviews. It's a totally airwolf podcast. Jack, you can't be Hold sick. On. My position has been compromised. Repeat, my position has been compromised. We'll send back. No! Send me an editor! Jack, you're pinned down. You should be returning fire. No! I should be listening to Mara's podcast! I should be writing! Time is short. Subscribe to Murr Lafferty's I Should Be Writing at IShouldBeWriting.com. Your life and the fate of the free world may depend on it. And we are back. You know, street-level access or not, I think I'd love to live in a place like Ms. Fallon's apartment building. And not just because of the hired help. I think there's a beauty to old places that have been lived in for a long time, especially if they've been treated with love and respect. There's something magical about a warmly lit room with shelves of old books running from floor to ceiling, or wooden staircases that spiral up and up for stories, or old paintings in big elaborate frames. In our culture, we tend to get really caught up in the things that are new, the sleek and shiny and wondrous things that seem to promise a better tomorrow. But our world can get so polished and glossy and modern that it just ends up feeling sterilized, like the Federation starships on Star Trek The Next Generation. So no matter how fast our internet connections get, or how many features Apple can fit into its next version of the iPhone, I hope there's always a place in our world for the cozy red room with ceiling fans, a fireplace, and walls covered with books. I want to take a minute here and give a shout-out to our featured musical artist for this episode. Her name is Neola Sparkus, and her song, In My Dreams, was featured in this production of The Sentinel. Ms. Sparkus is a Lithuanian-American who was raised in Chicago and currently resides in Los Angeles. Her music combines folk and world-pop elements with Lithuanian choral background vocals and a wide variety of instruments. 
You can find the full version of In My Dreams on her CD, Parallel Universe, which is available now from CD Baby and Amazon. I'll have a link to her website in the show notes. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.5 license. If you like it, share it with a friend or post about us on your blog. You can also vote for us at Podcast Pickle and Podcast Alley or post a review on Yahoo. If you want to send us comments, you can do it at feedback at metamorecity.com or you can leave us a voicemail at 206 7333 We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Until next time, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. Some sound effects for this podcast were provided by the Free Sound Project, located at freesound.iua.upf.edu. The music for this podcast was provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. Check it out at music.podshow.com.